All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus 33, that's where we'll be tonight. Exodus 33. And we'll pray. Lord, we pray for a nice time in your word, a time of refreshing as we've drawn near to you and have sang, and the kids are in the back, and they're getting taught, and hopefully drawn close to you, not only in in word, but indeed knowing your love, which is what uh, Moses experiences here um, tonight. It's a very special chapter. As a, That's all he wants from you. And that's all we want from you, God, is to draw near to you. We don't want everything else. We just want you. And so speak to our hearts, and um, uh, we pray that we would learn more about you, that we would experience you more and, and understand you better. In Jesus' name, amen. The nation of Israel in chapter 32 had blown it again. He had come down the mountain, Moses, with the two... Co- tablets of stone, and uh, had a very nice time up there as God gave him directions for the tabernacle and the the law, and um, before he was even done speaking to Moses, the nation of Israel had already fallen into deep, deep sin, completely walked away from the God who had taken them out of Egypt and had made golden calves to worship instead, and said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, and it wasn't obviously. But that's what they needed. They needed something to look at and something that allowed them to sin. And that's, uh, that's what John chapter 3 basically says, is that people don't come to the light because they love the darkness. It's not that they don't disagree with the light or that they don't know that the light's right. It's that they know if they go to the light, they can't do what they want to do. And they're okay with what they're doing. They've been okay with what they're doing for a long time. Um, When you teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, when you study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, on your own or in in a church setting, when God comes across something in your life that you didn't realize was something he wasn't pleased with, that's a hard pill to swallow, but we... We kind of need to be prepared for that. That's why we pray before we get into God's word is that we're prepared to receive everything you have for us. Isn't just a platitude. It isn't some kind of phrase we use because like God bless you or uh, praise the Lord, which we use inappropriately sometimes. We really want God to prepare our hearts to receive everything he has for us. And that means we are willingly opening ourselves up to correction and change. Chapter 33 is that. This is the steps to revival. It's interesting, that came up several times in my study time, and I then um, was getting my notes prepared and everything, and got a notification from another pastor nearby who says, revival, revival. And he, he actually described revival exactly what it's not. He was so excited for this revival, but it was actually the exact opposite of what true revival is. It isn't about getting excited. For the Lord. That's not a revival. Um, revival isn't even the gifts of the Holy Spirit being used or moved. It isn't about the church being blessed or being able to even function better. It isn't about how many people you baptized or how many people attended the meeting. That's, that's not what revival is. This is revival, chapter 33. This is true revival. And it can't be sparked by men. It's got to be sparked by God. 
And so as we see this taking place here, this beginning of the revival, I want you to pick up on probably the most important thing. And I, I've, been, I've had a habit of doing that lately, is telling you the most important thing right off the bat in case, for some reason, our minds wander, which they do, and I understand. It's late, had a long day. I kind of drone a little bit sometimes, and it's easy to kind of drift off to my melodic voice, soothing you. Most important thing is here is, Moses and the nation of Israel says, we don't want all the things, God, that you've ever promised us. We don't want all the milk and honey. We don't want the promised land if it means you're not there. And that's the difference between revival, and I don't know what the other word is for it, the opposite of revival. Sometimes we can go to church, Baptist church, Lutheran church, Calvary Chapel, any church, for a long period of time, and not realize you've never been born again. You've never desired God so badly that no matter what life brings me, whether all my emotions are screwed up, whether I've lost my health completely, and whether I've lost all physical possessions, as long as I have God, I'm overjoyed. That's being born again. And a lot of people have never been confronted with that. And that's why it's very important to pray the prayer that we pray. God, please give us everything we need and help us to receive everything you have for us. In verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God promises to give them everything he ever promised to give them. He says, I'm not going with you. I don't know what to do with you. If I go up with you, I'm going to consume you. I'm a consuming fire. And so it's best you go without me. I want you to go to the land of flowing with milk and honey. I will drive out all of your enemies as I promised you. I'll even send my angel before you so he can do all that for you. Lead you right to the place you're supposed to go. The very place I promised the other three guys before you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm not going up with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. Perfect. That's absolutely the beginning of revival right there. It starts with God saying, what you're doing is not okay. It's so not okay that I can't be around you or you'll die. And I love you too much for you to die. So I'm going to let you have everything you've ever wanted, but I can't go with you. And their response to that is milk and honey or not, land or not, enemies defeated or not, that's horrible news to us. And it should be, of course. God calls them a stiff-necked people. And what that means is not just a rigid person. It's actually a farm animal term when they won't pull where they're supposed to pull. It's not just that they won't go because they don't feel like it. They're actually resisting the farmer in his direction. And although God has only his best interests in mind for the people of Israel, they are stiff-necked. They are resisting the leading of the Father. They don't want to do what he wants them to do. They won't go where he's trying to lead them. 
They're doing everything they can to not do what he's asking them to do. And that's his response, is you're a stiff-necked people. Now, they'd understand that. There's nothing more frustrating than a stiff-necked animal. An animal that won't go where it's supposed to or stay where it's supposed to. That's all I hear from you guys a lot of times is how, sorry I was late. (laughs) We had cows out. So stupid cows will go everywhere but where the fence is. You know, we got to repair fence because we got to keep the cows in because they don't wander around the middle. They run around the edge and they follow the fence till they find a hole and they get out. And everybody goes, oh, that's a good idea. And they all go with them. Now, I'm not a rancher. I don't know anything about it. But I hear from you guys. So I'm going to use it anyway. So when God says you got some stiff necked people, that's how he feels about the people of God sometimes. It's like, I've got them in the best pasture they could possibly have. I'm giving them food and water. I'm taking care of them. I'm killing all the coyotes and everything else that would attack their calves or anything else, but yet they still probe the fence to see where they can get out. These are just stiff necked people, you know. God says, I can't go up with you because I'll consume you. Some people have the idea that there's a a horrible God in the Old Testament and a super nice, new, and improved God in the New Testament. And it's just not the case. He's exactly the same in both Old Testament and New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, we see a whole lot more fire, and that's for a reason. We don't have Jesus. We don't have a Savior. We don't have the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We have right and wrong, and we have punishments for right and wrong, or reward and punishment for right and wrong. And so we see what it looks like. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, when we read the Old Testament, we see that since there's no mediator between God and man, since there is no way, we see a lot of problems, a lot of scary verses. He's the same. God isn't like the yin and the yang. He's not black and white, and there's a balance between God. He's kind of nice some days, and he's kind of mean some days, and we just got to kind of let everybody, and sometimes we explain God that way. Well, you know, yeah, he gets mad, but he loves us too. No, 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 both are love. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Everything about him is good. His justice is good. His wrath is good. His grace is good. His mercy is good. His love, his compassion, his long-suffering, patience, kindness, joy. We love, we love the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 But we need to love everything else about him too. And it's all good. It's all on purpose. This very sentiment right here that he says, I'll consume you along the way if I go with you. Why? Is he saying I don't trust myself around you? I might just blow up? One of the commentators thought that's what it was. No. He is who he is. He's a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.21, our God is a consuming fire. 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. It's that's who he is. I don't want him to be anything he's not. In Isaiah thirty-three fourteen, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Among whom, this is a quote from the hypocrites, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? No one. It's a rhetorical question. And the hypocrites should be scared about that. God is who he is. He consumes and burns and destroys sin. And if I mostly sin, that's what God's concerned with. So we need to be changed. We need to be transformed into the image of God. We need to have 
That moment where we're born again, we're no longer that person of sin who's flammable and consumable by a true and living God who's a flame of fire, but someone who can dwell in his presence, who's been perfected, who's been redeemed, who's been sanctified, who's been justified, which is all the things that Jesus does for us as believers. Now, the fact that they mourn is a good thing. It says, and when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. They took off their earrings and their necklaces and all those things, which will later on be used for the construction of the tabernacle. I think that's maybe one of the reasons it was so easy in chapter 35. We haven't got there yet. I know we've covered it before, but we haven't got there yet. In 35, when they actually begin to bring all that stuff, and they begin to drop it off and make the pile, and they say, oh, you give too much. They're like, we don't miss that. This was dumb earrings that got in our way last time, dumb calves. This is something, if this is what you need from us to make this beautiful tabernacle out of, by all means, take all this garbage off of us because that's all it is. Because without you, we don't want it. It's a beautiful thing to get into your heart, to be in that place where no matter what happens or What you lose in the process, as long as I have the Lord, I won't trade him for anything. Now, granted, I'm not looking for pain and suffering. I'm not looking for hardship. But I would far much rather have him than anything else that the world has to offer. And it's a neat thing. And when that begins to happen in your heart, which is what's happening in their heart, true worship begins to take place. The nation of Israel begins to worship God. This is their way back. This is their start. This is the revival that, that we all pray for and hope for, but this is what it looks like. It looks like God showing, look, I'm going to give you everything, but I can't go with you or I'll consume you, so I'll see you. And they begin to mourn that loss of God in their lives. They begin to set themselves apart. They begin to take off the gold jewelry. They begin to do things spontaneously, organically, from their heart to their God's heart, regardless of who else sees it or knows it. It's not a Pharisee thing where look at me, I don't have any earrings on. It's a, I don't even want, I don't want to wear this stuff. It's embarrassing. It's prideful. I can feel it. I can see it on myself. And they begin to change themselves. It's a beautiful thing. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Take them. We don't want them. Moses took, never seen this before in how long I've been saved? A long time, 30 years. Never seen this till tonight. I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it because it's always, I'm never surprised that God doesn't show me. The tabernacle, the first tabernacle of meeting is not the tabernacle that they make in 35. Did anybody know that? The first tabernacle of meeting is Moses' personal tent. Raise your hand if you knew that. Okay, thank you. Then I'm not the only one. 
Moses' personal tent is the first tabernacle of meeting. It's not the one that we all know about with the coverings and all the furniture inside. He just takes his own personal tent, sets it outside, and begins to separate himself from the group. And God meets him there in a Shekinah glory in the cloud, descend upon his personal tent. Never knew that. So Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. I mean, how do you miss that? (laughs) It's cryptic. It's hidden. No, it's really not. Called it the tabernacle of meeting, and it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. It's kind of cool. I mean, tell me that doesn't mean a lot. Moses doesn't know what to do. God doesn't know what to do. So Moses does. He hasn't thought about this. He hasn't produced a strategy. He didn't do a demographic. He just picked up his tent and says, I don't want to be counted with sinners. And I will isolate myself by taking my tent and moving outside the camp. And I will sit out here because if God's not in the midst of this, I don't want to be in the midst of it. And he moves outside the camp of Israel and sets it up. He sets it up far from the camp. It's said that that's the, that's a traditional place for the church. It's outside of the city limits. Now, I'm not saying that's special or anything, but for me, as I was studying tonight, I'm like, amen. Because we never got that verse when we bought this land. Nobody was thinking that way. No one was strategizing. No one was saying, hmm, we need to be outside city limits, and we need to be on the edge of town. Because, because none of us knew that Moses' tent was, <laughs> we didn't know that. None of you just admitted to that that you didn't know that. God just worked it out. And that is, this is true church growth right here. This is how it's done. Not for the sake of church growth, but for the sake of just purity, unity. If you want to worship God, they had to literally walk outside and go to where Moses' tent was. That's where they went. When they saw him go, it says that everyone that came, it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which is outside the camp. They just went. And everybody, obviously, the opposite here is everybody who didn't want to go out didn't. Now, this is not a claim to say that we're the only ones or this is the place and anybody that doesn't come to Calvary Chapel isn't truly set apart for God. Not what I'm saying at all. Hopefully you all understand that. We're not that prideful. I do find it neat 
that in some sense we're physically manifesting God's word in a sense. There's other places. You, you can say any church is this. Some people on Sunday mornings physically get out of bed and go to worship God. Others choose not to, if that makes anybody feel better or feel, I don't want anybody to feel slighted who's watching online who doesn't attend. That's not the point. The point is Moses separated himself, sanctified himself. He didn't care who was with him. He knew what he was going to do. It was far more important for him to do that. And that's where he was going to meet God. And everyone that wanted to, who sought the Lord, went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which is outside the the camp. And so it was. Whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, look what happens. When one man decides to go out and worship the Lord at the tabernacle, Moses would get up and walk out there. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose. And each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses. There he goes, he's going to worship God. And that spurred them on to want to do the same thing. Moses didn't care if anybody joined him or not. Moses wasn't going to go if everybody was coming with him. He was going to go regardless. And the fruit of that, the result of that, was people that truly wanted to be separated for God and set apart for God watched Moses And then it came to pass when he entered the tabernacle, they saw the pillar of cloud. How encouraging that would have been for them. Their leader was truly meeting with the Lord. He didn't just go into a tent and say, and came out and say, yeah, I met with God. Okay. But, I mean, we've had a lot of experience with this God. And he kind of, when he shows up, everybody knows it. Remember the mountain burning? (laughs) You remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke? Remember the plagues? You remember all that stuff, you know? Remember the Red Sea? When, when he's around, we tend to know it. They're used to that by now. And so when they see this cloud descending upon Moses' tent, they knew God's meeting him there. Nice. Moses shouldn't have to tell them he met with God. They should be able to know that he met with God. I shouldn't have to tell people I'm a Christian. They should know that I'm a Christian. They can see the difference. They can see the change. They can see the heart coming through. It's obvious. It isn't because I said praise the Lord or amen a whole lot and had all the Christian lingo down, you know. It's because there's something different about their countenance. There's something different about their mannerisms, the way they carried themselves, the way they treated others, and the way they talked about Jesus. There's something visibly or visible And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. Just talk with him. It doesn't say what they said. You know? I notice stuff like that. What do they talk about? Because I'm nosy. You know, can't mind my own business. I'd have been at the tent eavesdropping, you know. Well, they don't write it down because it has nothing to do with us. is isn't something that we need to know. It was definitely for Moses. So. Moses has got to be in a place as a leader. What do I do? I mean, we were arguing back and forth about who the people were, your people, my people, your people, and I come down, and I don't know what to do with them. They're all worshiping calves. Aaron, the one I asked to bring along, made the calf. I know, I know. I mean, he's got, I'm just thinking as a leader, he's got a bunch, and now you're telling us to go on to the promised land without you? 
no, <laughs> no, I do not want to go anywhere. I'm not leaving this place. We're not moving this place. We're just going to sit still. I mean, if we die here, we die here. At least we know you're here. We're not going anywhere. It's the idea. And so they have talks. They're talking with each other. We don't know what they said. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his own tent door. I want to be separate too. Now, I, I, I don't ever want anybody to come to church because somebody else is coming to church. Now, it may start that way, but man, it can't be that way in a person's life. You, you can't be going to church because someone else is going. If it's not your heart to go, if you don't set yourself apart, if you don't do what Moses does and take, take your tent, your body, and move it and separate yourself from the world, it's got to be that, or you're pretending. And you're a pew sitter or a chair sitter or an occupier or a surplanter. I mean, I don't know how many different words we can use, but don't mistake calling yourself a Christian for being a Christian. I'm a tomato. I'm not, but I just said I was, you know. Oh, tomato has characteristics. Pretty obvious you're not a tomato. Tomato wouldn't do that. Tomato doesn't taste like that. Tomato, you know. So Christianity is no different. If I say I'm a Christian, there's, there's a reason I say it or there's a reason I wear that. It's because it was an earned title. It was a derogatory term used by people that weren't believers. So you're a little Christ, little Messiah out there. Because they could spot it. They could tell you were, you were obviously someone who's madly in love with a, the Lord. And so they d- tried to make fun of you for that. I... Not to get on too, too far off track here, but I hope we're prepared for what's coming. It's, it's going to be really unusual to truly believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man will or can come to the Father but by him. It's going to get really Difficult for a Christian to stand up and say, I believe every word in this book, and there's nothing in this book that I don't believe. I love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and the strength, and I will die for him. Not only physically taking the bullet if, it, if I have to, but I'm going to die to myself daily. It's going to get really difficult. We haven't even started yet. And so I make these impassioned pleas about being born again, even though there's nothing I can do about it to tell you at least don't deceive yourself into thinking that you are or you're okay if you don't have this same heart that we're reading right here in chapter 33. That if I lose everything, at least I still have Jesus. And that's all that matters to me. Now, if I get to keep any of it, bonus. Cake and frosting. (laughs) Have my cake and eat it too. But if I lose it all, at least I've got the Lord. That's born again. And if you don't have that, and your question is, I don't know that I feel that way, then you need to get alone with the Lord and start talking to him about it. Because I can lead you in a prayer, but if you're just mouthing the words after my words, that doesn't mean anything either. It isn't a creed that you pledge allegiance to the Lord. Of the United Heaven, you know, it, it isn't that. You are truly going to give your life over to God tonight. It's all yours, Lord. 
I don't want anything else but you. I don't want you to fix my marriage if it means you're not in it. I don't want you to fix my kids if it means they're not going to walk with you. I don't want a raise if it means that I'm not going to have you in my life. I don't want you to fix my problems. I don't want you to heal me if it means you're not there. I want you. That's all I care about. It's all they care about. Go on without me. No, we're going to mourn here. We're going to worship here. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would turn to the camp, return to the camp. Look at this. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Truly, there's over two million people here. And when we use the phrase figuratively, man, he's one in a million. Truly, Joshua is one in a million. He's one in two million. Out of two million people, one not even Moses, stays at the tabernacle. And that's a kid who's on fire. That's a kid who says, why am I going back to the camp? There's nothing back there for me. This is everything right here. This. He's the only one that stays. You can see why God turns the keys over to this giant caravan to him. Who else could he turn it over to? Except to Joshua, the son of Nun. He was a young man, but had more wisdom than all the gray hairs in the camp. You know? It's a beautiful thing. Now, when it says he spoke to him face to face, I want us to understand that. We know that no one can see the face of the Father and live. Scripture tells us that. But let me explain some things. It says, let's see here. Make sure I get this right. Numbers 12, 8. I speak with him, Moses, face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my service, Moses? Now, this is when he's rebuking a group that decided to come up against him. He says, now, when I speak to Moses, I just talk to him. I don't do dreams and I don't do visions with him. We just sit down and talk face to face. It says he saw a form, could very well have been an image of Christ or something like that. You know that Jesus is the expressed image of the Lord, possibly. But when he says face-to-face, it means he just spoke plainly to him. It wasn't a dream that needed to be interpreted or anything. And so I want us to understand that. No one else has that except us. Maybe you don't experience this. Maybe you don't understand this. It says he speaks to him as a friend. And what did Jesus say to the disciples? I call you my friends. It's on purpose that he uses those things. Jesus is God come in the flesh, and he sat with these guys for three and a half years and spoke to them plainly, face to face. There was no misunderstandings. There was no dreams to get interpreted like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar or all these poor and Daniel running around trying to figure out, well, what does that mean, you know? Ezekiel, all these prophets that never had this moment. We have that. He speaks to us plainly. He's not strange or cryptic. When Jesus died, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. There's a reason Jesus is crucified outside of Jerusalem. 
Just like Moses is outside here with his tabernacle of meeting. When we want to meet the Lord, Jesus isn't in the center of town. He isn't the center of the world. He's over there. It takes a little bit of effort to walk over to the cross. It takes a little bit of decision. He doesn't just plant himself in our way and we can't get around him. Uh, Okay, okay. You know. Nope, I'm over there. You want to get baptized? I'm out there. You had to go out in the wilderness to get baptized. You wanted to come to Jesus? You want to come to the foot of the cross? You had to go over there. There's a little bit of distance. There's some walking. There's some intentional works that we do. We intentionally walk to Jesus. It has to be a decision. That's the, that's the name of Billy Graham's magazine. It's good. It's a decision magazine. It is your and my decision to make. It is their decision to make or not to make. Well, they're going to make the decision. It's just which way they decide is up to them. Joshua took it upon himself to follow Moses out there. He went up the mountain. He stayed back down. He was his servant, but Moses went back into the camp, and Joshua says, I'll be out here when you come back out. Not interested in serving you there. I'll be over here. Interesting. One in two million Now, then Moses said to the Lord, after all of this, this is revival, remember, we're not, we heard you call stiff-necked people, we're taking off our ornaments, we're mourning the bad news, we're uh, setting up a tabernacle, even though we haven't made it yet, you're meeting with us, and if we want to worship you, we're going to worship you right here. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also Uh, and, And you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Really bold, but that's what Moses does. I've experienced your presence. I know that you're powerful. I know that what you've done for us is wonderful. I know who you are. I want to know you more, is what he says. And he comes with boldness on the, on the basis of God's grace. You said I found grace, unmerited favor with you. Um, cashing in that chip right now. I'm boldly coming to you in that grace because I want to know your way. When we think a way, there's two ways to think about that. We can either think of a path or a lifestyle. That person has a certain way about them. And I believe that's what he's talking about. Yes, Jesus is the way, but he also had a way about him. I want to know your way. I want to know you better. I want to know you deeper. I, want to, I, I don't know what to know about you. I don't, know, I don't want to know the steps. I don't want to know the rules. I truly want to know who you are better. God will answer that prayer to any one of us that wants to know him better. That's willing to set themselves apart. That's willing to accept it. Is willing to receive everything he has for us. And when we run across something, as he's describing himself to us, and what he is and who we are doesn't match up, we have to be willing to say, then I'm wrong. It needs to change and go. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of justifying that in my life. It's gone. I'm all yours, and I want to be all you. So God says to him, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. 
For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? We don't want your angel. (laughs) We don't want number two. We want you. We don't want to be known as the scrubs. We don't want to be a second string. We don't want to look like everybody else. We want people to know that we're your people. And the only way they're going to know that is if you're in our presence. Where's the pillar? Where's the smoke? Where's the fire? I don't want name only. I don't want to be called God's people and have to remind people of that. We want to be your people because it's so clear that you're with us. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We want to be different. And that's a question you have to ask. Do I want to be different or do I want to blend in? We've just got a taste this year of what it's like to stand up for what you personally believe in. And all the pressure that came along with that, such a minor, small thing. And I'm not making it a biblical thing, and I'm not making it a moral thing. I'm I'm saying we've had challenges this year to where you're either going to do what everybody else did because you just didn't want to look different or be different, or you're going to do what you need to do because you felt so strongly about it. I'm going to be separate. I want to talk about Jesus when it's unpopular to talk about Jesus, when the whole room's going to get mad at me, when I'm going to get rocks thrown at me, when they'll never talk to me again. I want to be bold for Jesus. I want to tell them about the Lord. I want to love them. I want to let them know I'm right over here outside the camp because I know I can't come into the camp anymore. But I'm right over here if you need to hear more about the Lord. I'm right over here, you know. That's what we want. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. He just won't shut up, will he? I'm not going anywhere unless you come with me. All right, I'll go with you. No, I mean really, really go with us. If you really go with us, I'm going to go with you. I want to see your glory. He just keeps pushing him. And that is what a great example of someone who's tasted the Lord. As soon as you get a taste of who God is, first of all, nothing else will satisfy, and that's not something we just say because we want to look good in front of each other. Truly, nothing else satisfies. Once you taste the Lord, once you've been baptized with the Spirit, once you've been born again, everything else is just, really, that's your master passion? That hobby that you have is your master passion? It just doesn't even make sense. It doesn't compute anymore. Moses is at that place. No, your presence is everything. And if it's here in the middle of nowhere, then here's where I want to be. Milk and honey, I don't care where that's at. But if this is where you're staying, this is where I'm staying. I want to see your glory, he says. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. And that doesn't mean his 
back, his physical back. That means you can see the glow that I leave behind me, the wake of beauty that I leave behind me. But my face shall not be seen. Now Moses says, I'll take that, you know, I'll do that. We call that an afterglow. You know, you ever, whenever we have a meeting and we call it an afterglow, it's, we really have to understand what we mean when we talk. But we're not talking about just speaking in tongues, tongues in a group and someone interprets or a prophecy. Or sometimes that's how it's understood. No, we truly want to bask in the afterglow of the Lord. We want to be in his presence as close as we can possibly get. We want to experience all that he has for us just because we love him, because we want to be around him. We don't care what he does or what he doesn't do. We just want to take this time and be with him. We're going to go to the tabernacle of meeting. We're going to sit there and we're going to wait and be with him. That's what that means. Now, other things may happen in the process, but that doesn't define it as an afterglow. That doesn't define it as a time of meeting with the Lord. When uh, Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah's conclusion is, I am undone. I'm undone. This is the great prophet Isaiah. And the presence of the Lord shows up, and he sees the visions and all, and he's like, I'm undone. I can't even stand. John, in Revelation 1.17, when he sees the image of Christ, when he sees the Lord there in that chapter, he he falls with his face to the ground, and Jesus has to put his his right hand on him and say, you're okay, it's okay. It's not okay. (laughs) I'm not okay. I'm so not okay. And that's... That's the Lord. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 does the same thing. These are normal people having experiences with the true and living God. This isn't abnormal stuff. This is stuff every one of us should want, desire, long for, search for, wait for. Every one of us can have these moments. At one point, Edwards... uh, can't think of his name. I wrote down their names, their last names only. Edward's a great preacher. Um, he had sat there for an hour praying, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says it went by like that. It was just like that. Time was nothing. Another name was Brainerd. He was in the middle of the winter, and he was praying and being filled with the Holy Spirit, but he was boiling hot. He was just sweating away, even though he's in the midst of a, a storm. Moody had to tell him, stop, Lord. Stop. I can't take any more of it. And we hear about these things like, oh, yeah, the Lord is good. No. No, when I read stories like that, when I see Isaiah and I see John and I see Paul and Edwards and Brainerd and Moody and any of the other people that I read, I'm like, okay, why not me? That's what I want. I want that. And I don't care what I have to give up for it. I don't care how far away I have to separate myself from this world. If this world is in between me and that, have it. Have it. So I pray we learned a little bit more about it because I kind of glossed over it because we don't have the time to talk about it. But when God brings his goodness in front of him, he says, I'm going to show you and let you experience as much of me as you can possibly handle. And it can't be full strength, totally filtered in the cleft of a rock, with my hand over you. I'm going to pass by really quick. I'm going to let you look, and you're going to see everything else. That's as close to me as you can get, and it's going to be too much for you, Moses. Moses goes on top of the mountain and comes down, and his face was glowing. The people said, put a veil over it. It's too much. I can't, I can't look upon it, and it faded eventually. When God 
says, when someone says, I, I want to see you, and I think in our prayers, we need to be careful how we pray. God, I want to see you move. Sometimes we'll say that. I want to see, you know, God, I want you to be strong on my behalf, and we mean in this situation, fix it. That's fine. I understand that. None of these things are being prayed by any of these men, though. What they're asking for is, I want as much of you as possible. I don't care whether you fix all the other stuff in my life. I want as much of you as I can possibly take. As much as you think I can, you can pour into me, that's what I want. And God says, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. You're going to know everything about me, or everything about me is going to be paraded in front of you. You know, We kind of tend to think of this as some physical thing that just happened. And it, it, it was, but he says, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. I want that. And I, and I want everybody to want that. That's as much as I can do with it. I can wish it. I can hope for it. I can pray for it. But every one of us in this room has to make a decision that that's what we want. I'm going to take my tent. I've got to move it outside. Outside of everything else. I've got to take myself and sanctify myself and set myself apart from the rest of this world so that we can have that. And he went back into the camp, and that's to minister to people, of course, but we have to have that. Can't minister to anybody if we're not having that time with the Lord. If we don't have that, if we're not born again, if we're not filled with His Spirit, if we're not constantly being refreshed by His goodness and learning more about Him and absorbing everything He is and who He is and letting that reflect off of us. We can't minister. We've got to have that. And that's where we leave off tonight. It's a good chapter. I like it when I read stuff that I learned. I I mean, it's exactly what happened to Moses. I want to know more about you. And as I'm saying this chapter, I'm like, how did I not know about this tabernacle thing? You know? I go, oh, man. And that just shows me. I mean, how many years have I been studying? And all of a sudden, and that obvious thing that's been right there, plain in front of my face this whole time, read it who knows how many times. It's so frustrating with myself. What else have I missed? You know? Uh, if I gave you full strength, J.D., you wouldn't be able to handle it. You know, Here's a bite. Here's a piece. I'll take it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Moses knew your love. He knew your heart for the people. He knew that the sin wasn't just something you were mad at. It, was, it broke your heart because you loved the people so much. So much so that you're willing to give all your promises to them, but you just couldn't be in their presence, and they chose you. And so tonight, we want to come to you individually, but as a group, we want you. We, we, we ask that of you now. We want to see your glory. We want to see all that you have. We want to let all your goodness into our lives. All of it. As much as we can take, God, in, in, in the amount of quantities that you can give us at different times, you know, we, we know we probably can't have it all at once, but we'll take what we can when we can, when we can handle it. But we want, max us out, Lord. Max us out. And so we don't have tents to move like Moses did, but we do want to consecrate our lives to you tonight and pray, God, we set our lives apart for you. We set them aside for you to worship you to get alone with you, to let you speak to us, to change us, to be different, to be set apart from this world, 
in the world, if they want you, they can come. And we'll tell them all about you. But that's what they're going to get when they come to our tent. They're going to hear about you, and they're going to see us worshiping. And they're going to experience you like we've experienced you. So help us to be those little tents, those little lights all over this world where people know if they go there, that's what they're going to get. We love you. We thank you for doing that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, we'd be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week, guys.